first of all, there would be less emphasis on certification and more emphasis on education. So that you'd have to earn the right. If you don't go to three weekend workshops and now, you know, you have letters after your name. And, and there has to be, uh, you know, in-depth learning about pedagogy, how to teach, how to organize. to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode of the Pace Performance Podcast features an absolute legend in strength and conditioning, and that is Vern Gambetta. So it's taken me far too long to get Vern on 371 episodes, and based on this very reflective episode, it's taken me far, far too long. So in this episode, like I say, we do have a bit of a reflective time based on Vern's long and illustrious career. But we also then dive into agility and change direction training. Lots and lots of confusion, I think, in this area in particular. So it's great to get Vern's breakdown of how he coaches it, how he creates drills using constraints, how he does that for multiple different athletes across different phases, so youth athletes versus elite, how he progresses, how he regresses. Really, really interesting chat with Vern. Then we have a little bit of a fun bit of fun at the end talking about talking about the gurus that we all know exist within this space and how influential they are actually in the indirectly the the, the coaching of elite athletes based on their input on social media. So really really interesting chat with Vern, which I'm sure you'll love. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website, hawkingdynamics.com, to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. And this episode of the podcast is also sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra high G capabilities to quantify high impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting longer life battery to collect data all day real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. 
So without further ado, over to the episode with Vern Gambetta. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Thank you for giving up a little bit of your morning to speak to me. Well, I'm excited to, to be on and, uh, it, you know, I've been able to listen to various people on your podcast. You do a really good job and so it's an honor to be on. Thank you. Thank you very much. It always makes me a little bit nervous when I have someone on who, well, firstly, has done so much as what you've done, but secondly, who's also a podcaster themselves. So uh, I hope I'm not being judged. <laughs> I'm not being judged. But well, thank you for the kind words. Yeah, I the, the podcasting part is, um, I, I, I said to you before we came on, whatever the opposite of a, of a self-promoter, a shameless self-promoter is, that's what I am. And you know, it's a vehicle to share ideas and information and stimulate thought, you know, not controversy, but thought. And thank God for Martin Bingusser, who's, you know, who's really a great partner and, uh, you know, and, and pushed me this way, you know, too. So it was in, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to do because you, it's a way to meet more people, you know, and uh, that's what it's done, you know, so. Of course. We had a little chat beforehand about your, well, very briefly, about your previous roles as a, as a teacher and the and the importance of that. And again, I said, I'll, I'll say it again, I said it at the time, not to be disrespectful, but the older guys that I have on, the 50 people above 50 who come on the podcast, very often have that background in teaching whether that be Eddie Jones, as we as we spoke about, but there's there's countless other ones, uh, Kelvin Giles, other ones that have been on the on the podcast as well. How important is that for you? That and how often do you? You probably do it all the time subconsciously, but how often do you call upon that experience as vital for you in your coaching roles? Invaluable and daily. Uh, uh, I mean, whether I'm coaching coaches or. Uh, hands-on with the athletes. Your coaching is teaching. Uh, I was trained as a teacher. Um, you know, I didn't realize I really passionately wanted to be a teacher until uh, after my sophomore year in college. And then it was, you know, all, you know, straight ahead, go for it. And, uh, you know, and, and I think the thing is, and you're right, it's about a break point about those of us 50 and over. Uh, that was, it was just expected that, and, 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 you know, I wasn't, uh, as an undergrad, I was a social science major with an emphasis in Latin American history and a, and a coaching minor. And, you know, and then I went on and got my master's in education with an emphasis in physical education. And, but again, education was, you know, and, and the foundation of that is pedagogy, the science of teaching. And I think the biggest thing missing today, particularly in the 20 and the, the, the coaches in their 40s are kind of stuck. They're, they're halfway in between. Some of them have been exposed. Some of them haven't. But the 20 and 30 year age group coaches, not just S&C, but across sports, you know, they're, they're very ultra specialized and they were not trained as teachers. And so you see real gaps in you go whether it's. Um, athletic development, strength and conditioning, or whether you go out and you watch a session on the field, you can tell right away. You know, I mean, we had to, you know, PE 30A at Fresno State, we had 50 guys and guys, and that shows the time it was in the class. And you had to get them in formation, and you had to, you know, and some of these guys were, I was 18 years old, they were 25 veterans of, you know, the Army and stuff like that. And so you had to learn how to, 
command attention and and progressively, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, progressions, learn progressions and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And and it, it one other thing, Rob, without belaboring this point, the people who taught us, my generation, I'm 74, uh, and you know, pretty much everybody over 60 were the were the people the the so-called greatest generation they they had either been uh in the service uh in the Korea, in the uh, World War II or the Korean War and they were they they were um and then they went back to school when they were more mature in our country with this thing called the GI bill and so i mean i i think back now what an influence my high school basketball coach bless his soul who i revere today was a bomber pilot you know, over Normandy and, you know, and that, and the things that he taught us, life lessons that he taught us in basketball and the things that he taught us in basketball. I've become friends with Ron Adams, who's a little younger than me, three years younger than me, and he's a truth teller in the NBA. He's the coach. He's with the Golden State Warriors. And I was asking, you know, we were talking about stuff and he says, where'd you learn that stuff? And I said, my high school basketball coach. You know, and he and he said the same thing. He said he's teaching things in the NBA that he learned from his high school coach, who was a, you know, had been trained as a teacher. So long, long-winded answer, but teaching, and that's that's the biggest thing we have, and that's one of the biggest goals of the Game Network is 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 to emphasize is the pedagogical basis of what we do, and and to become better teachers. You know, is is the key, regardless of what your role is. So the million dollar question then, Vern, if these kind of things that that you've just mentioned are missing for those 20 and 30 year old guys, how can we get that back in? And what would you recommend from an education point of view that is actually missing, like the, the X's and O's that are missing in this education pathway that, like you say, these ultra specialized coaches are actually going through and coming out the other end of? What would you be your recommendation, given that you had all the power in the world? <laughs> if I was kidding. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it would be, first of all, there would be less emphasis on certification and more emphasis on education so that you'd have to earn the right. If you don't go to three weekend workshops and now, you know, you have letters after your name and, and there has to be, uh, you know, in-depth learning about pedagogy, how to teach, how to organize. And, and, and you have to uh, I, I really think when you start out, somehow we have to stop this uh, ultra specialization thing. So you're not a strength coach, you're not a speed coach, you're not an endurance coach. You need to understand how all the components fit together. And so developing some sort of an educational model that addresses, and sure, it leads to a certificate or a uh, or accreditation or a degree. But if you look at, and England is a classic example, I've spent a lot of time there in Scotland, you have, uh, you can quote me the numbers, X number of thousand sports science people graduating every year. And I've interacted with some, they're wonderful young people, young men and women, but they couldn't coach their way out of a wet paper bag. They could <laughs> recite the Krebs cycle forward and back. They can tell me about how many sets and reps I need to do this. But if you ask them to go out on the field, and and translate this into reality that they're you know they do it but that's why we have some of the issues we have today in sport with 
with injuries and lack of performance because we're trying to, we have so much specialization and we're trying to fit everybody into models, you know, where if you're an educator, you take a step back, you know, you look at the overall situation. I mean, I, I remember teaching uh, history classes where I had kids with an IQ of 80 and an IQ of 170. They were 20 times smarter than me. So how do you, how do you hold their attention? And the same thing in the physical realm whether you, you know, you mentioned that you had taught PE, you know, you teach PE and you've got, I had, I had in one gym class, I had three world, best water polo player ever, a professional baseball player that played until he was 46. And then I had a kid who had basically borderline um, muscular dystrophy, you know, in a class of 40 boys. So how do you, how do you handle that? How do you do that? How do you reach everybody? And that's how, that's what a teacher has to do. Yeah, I had, I had a similar experience, not with the baseball and the, the polo, but with the, a, a young boy that had muscular dystrophy um, and progressed on to, to in the wheelchair later, later down the line. But, I mean, that when I look back, and I've not I've done a, a fraction of what you've done in, in your career, but I've been stood in front of a group of 30 eight-year-olds in a PE lesson, uh-huh. expecting expecting to be entertained excited and expecting to be have some sort of structure that is a great experience for any especially any graduate coming through a degree just to be in front of that group like you've got a third that probably don't want to be there and hate PE you've got a couple that absolutely love it and you've got this big group in between that we could sway either way so there's so many things that you have to pick up on like you said the emotional intelligence to, to pick up on what people what certain kids need and what certain other certain kids want i think that's definitely something that especially young coaches could get so much from just forcing themselves be, to be in front of a group of young kids and if you can handle a group of 38 year olds when you're in front of 10 athletes who are 25 like it's a breeze it's a breeze no, no, that's for sure. You know, one day, quick story when I, uh, we in in, in uh, California where I was raised and went, did all my, most of my education. So you graduate from college and then you go uh, postgraduate year to get your teaching certificate. And I went to University of California, Santa Barbara, where I was born and raised. And I had a terrific master teacher, Ruth Wilbert, this little, uh, I, I wish I could, she had the most uh, amazing Southern accent. She was just, just a most amazing teacher, amazing person. And she had us go one day. We went from a regular preschool, a Montessori preschool, to an elementary school, to a junior high, and to a high school. She she worked it out so we could do that. And I'll never forget walking. And this is a thing for all of you, everybody out there. Never say never. And after I got with watching the junior high thing, I said, I'll never teach junior high. Guess what? Next year I'm teaching junior high, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, poor, poor Mrs. Wilbert. I, there was a lot of phone calls to her. Like, what do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, I, I think that's important. And it's, 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 I'm really, I don't want to sound melodramatic, but hope I have a few years to live and I'm really trying to dedicate my life, not to going back because people say, oh, you're just, you're just an old man. You want to, no, I don't want to go back. We've got to, we've got to stay contemporary, but we've got to, we've got to re-energize and re-emphasize 
this aspect and get away from specialization. I, people say, what's your specialty? Um, I, I specialize in being a generalist. I competed in the decathlon. I played American football before. And I, the, the ability to connect different, seemingly disparate things is crucial. And the more you zero in and, and specialize, the less you become aware of all the various connections out around you. I had a, a uh, recruiter on called David Slemon, who's an English guy, but does a lot of work with the Football Association over here. But I think he's also venturing to the US with um, performance director roles and MLS and whatnot. He described a diagram that he's got on his website, the, the T-shape. So multiple the general uh, components that you're good in uh, at the top, and then one specific thread that you become a specialist in. And hopefully you would be in an organization where that T is offset, depending on who you are. And all of a sudden you've got this big blob of, of um, expertise in these various different specialisms. Is that something that you think is the way to go to have these specialists, who, sorry, these generalists who have a specialist area versus what we have now, which is potentially the flip side, which is the big thick area, which is the specialism, then not much substance when it comes to the generalism? I, 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 I think I've seen that. I, I'm going to take notes on that. that. The T model is really good. So you have something that you're, you know, you're very, very proficient in. And, uh, and I think as you, I've been coaching 53 years, as you accumulate years of, of experience that it's becomes more, I, there's a few other, I don't know what the other thing, it becomes an M or something, you know, where you go down on certain areas as you progress through your career. But absolutely, because you've got to, you've got to communicate and you've got to work together with other people our jobs are to work together with other people, other professionals to make the athletes better. So what are you doing to get better at getting better so the athletes can get better? Okay. And so if you're so specialized that you can only talk about or deal with one aspect, you're shortchanging the athletes you're working with, you know, and it, it's, um, plus the, and somebody has to coordinate this. Somebody has to coordinate this too, you know. And uh, uh, I, I've often said now we just have problems getting people even in the same room, much less communicating the way many organ in, in collegiate here. And I'll talk about the states and collegiate and professional environments. And I'm very aware of what's happening over there and in Australia. I mean, it's 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 not even silos anymore. It's it's little islands with big gaps of water in between with no boats running between the islands. You know? So, uh, but uh, anyway, I, I hope that doesn't sound negative, but, and, and it's, 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 a, it's a, I think it should be a, honestly a, a, an upfront uh, objective of a sporting organization. You know, uh, I'm a big fan of McGowan's book, Essentialism. And, but that's not specialization. That's figuring out, you know, okay, we've got a mission to do. We've got to get this team ready for the European Championships in 16 weeks or whatever. Okay, how am I going to marshal my resources? Who's going to who's going to connect? Obviously, the hope. Obviously, the head coach is is the head sport coach is the captain of the ship. Because he's ultimate, the ultimate person responsible. But then, how do we marshal all these things to 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 make the athlete better? Right. 
sometimes I think we, it's not producing more spreadsheets. You know, those are fine. They're neat. But it's, um, yeah, it's that. Why do you think that is? And I, I've got a, a, a little bit of a theory why people go down that and probably feel more comfortable in that specialism area. Like, I am this guy. And it's it's driven by society and, and potentially some a little bit of a social media. I am a speed guy. I am the change of direction guy. I am the jump guy. Like, it's getting, to, it's getting into the minutiae of, like, physical qualities and then putting the so-and-so guy like it's it's a little bit weird when you actually think about it but people do feel comfortable in that specialism because it's it's nice and neat yeah oh it's, it's nice. nice and compact it's not this messy world that we live in because you they've actually put themselves in a box which is nice and comfortable and square and and, and neat like i say so yeah i mean the question would be is that a way that we've as as practitioners as professionals actually trying to look after ourselves and easily be able to potentially justify why we're there and what we're doing because we are in this box yeah no you're you're right i, I mean and, and that, it, 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 you know sport is a reflection of society and you know so if you go to a, a doctor now i know we don't have national health care here but I don't know what we have. We have chaos is what we have. But, uh, I mean, they're uber specialized. And I, I try to find, I mean, I live in Sarasota, Florida, which is um, God's waiting room. I mean, I'm a young person here and there's newlyweds <laughs> and nearly deads. And uh, I try to find doctors that are, you know, in their 50s and 60s who who, who have a better grasp of, health, you know, the, the human body and health in general. So it just reflects, and it reflects education. You have, you know, you have, you know, you, so you, you, you used to have psychology, and then you used to have anthropology and that. And now within those, you've got cognitive neuroscience, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then you have over in the biology department, you have somebody who's, who's, who's now, and, and, you know, like the whole hamstring issue, which I, you know, I'm passionate about how screwed up this has become. We got people studying fascicle length. And I'm thinking, pardon my French, but shit, I'm a coach. I got to get that guy better. I, I, yes, it's, 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 it's a nice trivia question that this exercise improves fascicle length. But let's zoom out and look at the pelvis. Let's look at that Dr. Magnus. Let's look at how everything works together. And so we've painted ourselves into this proverbial corner by not being able to, to, to communicate with other um, experts or other disciplines. You mentioned change of direction. I'm, since you asked me those questions, I've been more aware and I've looked. And I look at this stuff and I go, okay, the number one question I'm going to ask you, Rob, is how do you teach this stuff? Is it making the athlete better? You're, you're making everything so robotic and so cognitive. They get on the field, if they're not confused, it's thank God maybe they didn't listen, you know, and just because the game or sport, I don't care if it's an 800 meters, 100 meters, that competitive cauldron is chaos. And, and, and we have to prepare the athlete for the, for the, the to, to be adaptable and robust in chaotic situations. Now, that doesn't mean 
every training session is chaos, but it's not breaking everything down into, you know, the, the, the okay, the foot does this, the ankle does this. Yeah, that's cool. It's neat to know. I, I've gone through that phase, and sometimes I like to go back and, and, and talk about that stuff. But doggone it, I got to see how everything connects, okay, how you, it toenails to fingernails, how everything syncs, links, and coordinates, okay? And it's, um, it's complex in one sense, but it's, 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 you know, a lot of people are talking about implicit versus explicit learning and that kind of stuff. Well, it is. You know, the, we know now that the more explicit you make things, the less, um, you know, and the more you talk like we're talking, the less learning goes on. You know, you notice I'm using my hands and I'm, I'm reading a really cool book right now called The Extended Mind by Annie Murphy Paul. She's a science journalist, but she's talking about it's, it's I think every coach ought to read it. Every teacher, every parent ought to read it. You know, it's it's more about how how we learn. And really, we don't learn from, with the brain. We learn with our bodies. Well, that just plays right into our wheelhouse, doesn't it? As professionals that are that are dealing with movement. And movement at the highest level, you know, which is so cool. I mean, I we're so lucky to do what we do. Even if you're even if you're working with twelve or thirteen year olds, there that's movement at the highest level at that age. And it's so cool to be able to impact that, isn't it? You know, but you don't impact it by turning them into robots. Sorry, I got on a rant, but uh, no, 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 it's it's fine. It was probably, it was probably driven by me and my, the points that I, that I sent over, and that were just for my observations that these <clears throat> intricacies and this is me being again jumping on the bandwagon your bandwagon have been a little maybe a little bit cynical like you go deep and you sell this and like and sell is probably the, the the key word here these um very intricate details of a specific movement change of direction been worn and you pair them with other intricate very complicated small parts of the movement and it it comes it, I probably when I was saying this I'm, I'm thinking of a, a phrase that my dad used to say or still does that bullshit baffles brains and <laughs> it's is it is diving into such intricacy to complicate people to go oh wow this guy's got all this guy or girl's got all the answers like let's dive into this and let's pay them some money where actually the detail is obviously great but it's so important to be able to step back every now and again, or very regularly, to look at the whole picture rather than like it should instead of a forty-five degrees, it should be fifty, and let's all freak out because it's we're five degrees off. So, yeah, that's. Um, well, that's you asked in, in in your preparatory questions real quick for me to you know, and, and I have collaborate with a great professional, Jim Radcliffe, and we're really good friends too, and and uh, you know he's. A, He's a little younger than me, but he's a product of the same, you know, he's a trained as a teacher. But so we start with wheel drill, which is stance and first step. And then you go to organ sway drill, which Jimmy invented. Then you go to a dot drill where you learn to project your center of mass. Then you go to a double dot, which is there's two dots, three meters apart. So you learn to project your center of mass, accelerate, decelerate, and maybe reaccelerate. And then you learn speed cuts and power cuts, and you play the game. And then you 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 deconstruct. You know, like just sometimes uh, we had a I had a young tennis player a few years ago, and uh, and one of her cues was 
I, I wasn't with her when she played, but her coach came and we were working on this. And I said, okay, just, just remind her between points, this one particular thing is sway drill. Just say sway drill and that'll cue what she needs to do. That's all. Don't make it more complicated. I don't, I mean, every, you know, she was five foot two, tough little girl and, you know, nationally ranked and all of that. Um, I, I mean, I know what optimum angles are. I know all that stuff. I've read all that research, but you know, that it, it, you gotta, you gotta get it out of the athlete, you know? So I hope that makes sense. So, but simplify it. And then if, if, if you start having problems in the complexity of the game, what do you do? You go back to maybe, uh, depending on what it is, you dial back down and you go back through the progression. Maybe you have to, if it's a baseball player, right away we have to go right back to stance and first step or a cricket cricket player you know something like that and then we go back up you know on that so it just it's a self-correcting syllogism almost you know is what it works out to be so. let's have a little chat about the hamstring stuff that you've you mentioned about and you were clearly <laughs> clearly some passion there let's let's dive in so where did it all go wrong and that was essentially your terminology that you use where what are the problems that we're seeing in this area? And more importantly, how can we as coaches navigate this information and put ourselves, accept it, like accept the the, the viewpoints, what you just mentioned about people studying fascicle length and whatnot, understand that, but then use it for what it is and kind of create our own path to understanding and trying yeah. to understand and, and better the the athlete's risk of not having a hamstring injury. Yeah. Well, let, let's go back. First of all, Nordic hamstring, when I was first exposed to it, 1973, 74, we called it the gaucho hamstring exercises. The name of the team at UCSB was the gauchos. And we didn't have a leg. That's where we all trained. I trained for decathlon, decathlon at the time. And we didn't have a leg curl machine. So we thought we were, you know, deficient. And so the, the coach, used a sit-up board, anchored our feet under the sit-up board, and we did the Nordic hamstring curl. Well, within three weeks, one guy was out for the year with a hamstring avulsion tear, and two other guys had pulled their hamstring, and I just was dumb enough to stop doing it because I couldn't, I couldn't teach the next day. I was so sore. And we were only doing, you know, like eight reps and, and you know, and that. So that put it away. And then I saw it later on, about 10 years later, as... And if you go back in old physical education literature and that, you'll see the movement being done in gymnastics literature and that. And then it became the Russian hamstring curl and then the Nordic hamstring curl. So the original study done in Norway, uh, the original study was flawed. And, and I saw that all of a sudden I saw this and this is the answer to hamstring pulls. And, and, and uh, it was one group did normal soccer training and you're an ex-football player. What's normal soccer training? I don't know what normal. I mean, I've coached, I've coached from youth soccer on up to the World Cup level. I don't know what normal soccer training is. And the other group did normal soccer training and Nordic hamstring curl once a week, and for and it was like a thousand. It was a huge ant. And the people that did Nordic had less hamstring injuries than the people that did. Well, I mean, how did this get embedded in the literature? But once it's embedded in peer-reviewed literature, and then it spun off, and it spun off, and it spun off, and then you now you, you so fast forward to to like to, that was around '99. You know, you fast forward about 2015, and there's 
I, I mean, I have a folder that thick of all the hamstring research, and I read it and I shake my head, and I look at the numbers, like the AFL, the Nordic Hamstring League, Australian Rules Football, in parentheses, it's the Nordic Hamstring League. It was all adopted, and every year in the last 10 years, their hamstring injuries have gone up. It's a perfect 45-degree angle. Look, I'm just a dumb old coach and a teacher, but when, when, when you tell me that Nordic Hamstring exercise reduces hamstring injuries 50%, then because a lot of leagues don't publicize that data, by the way. That's why I'm using them as an example. We only know from what we read in the newspaper. And, and, and they're all doing it. My question is, wouldn't you question the exercise? And I asked these guys, I had a confrontational phone call with these guys, the original guys, and, and they said, your experience doesn't count. That's type one, um, you know, this is, this is peer-reviewed research. Well, so what? Look at the teams that don't have hamstring problems and see what they're doing and what they're not doing. Okay, that's that's common sense. That's not type one or top five research or something. Okay, so everywhere now, and so what I direct, and and I'll I'll, I'll end this rant. Um, I've gotten to know uh, Franco and Pelagieri, and uh, who really went after the uh, chronic acute workload yeah, show, by the way too, which has led to the hamstring issue. Because if you don't work hard and sprint all out. That you're going to be exposed to more hamstring injuries because you're asking the game to sprint all out. Well, there's a pre-publication. This is why methods matter in meta-analysis. A reappraisal showed inconclusive injury-preventing injury-preventive effect of Nordic hamstring exercises. It's just come out, and it's brilliant. It's a meta-analysis, and it's it it points out the flaws that dumb coach Vern has been saying. You know, so. Look, and, 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 and I, can, I don't want to jinx any of the people that I work with or myself. In, in my career of 53 years, I've had three hamstring injuries myself, and I'll explain those in a minute. Aside from that, I've had six, five with the White Sox and one, okay, in, in, in the White Sox in nine years. And what did we do? We did no leg curls. We did no leg extensions. We, we did various types of squats. We did a boatload of lunging in multiple planes, and we did low and high step-ups, and we sprinted, okay? The times I pulled my hamstring were when I was experimenting with stuff, you know, to, to, to try different things. So I'm a guinea, I just, that was something that I learned a long time ago. So that's no excuse, but I was doing isolated hamstring work just to see what would happen. Well, I pulled, you know, and one of them was real bad down at the insertion behind the knee, you know. So, uh, so you know, that's that's where I stand on this. And it's, it's you know, I'm, I mean, I'm a pariah. There's, there's places in Australia where they have my picture up with a target and they throw, uh, they throw darts at it. And I'm going, that's okay, guys, just keep doing what you're doing. And so the, the guys at Australian Catholic University did a uh, EMG study on, uh, they looked at various exercises and they looked at lunge, they looked at step up, they looked, and they say, well, we got the highest hamstring activation on Nordic hamstring curl. Well, of course you did. First of all, you only did anterior lunges. You didn't do frontal plane lunges. You didn't do frontal plane step ups. And if you isolate a muscle, I learned from a 
colleague of mine, when you use MG, EMG on an individual muscle, it's either screaming or singing. Okay, it screams when you isolate it because it's not supposed to do that in the real world. It sings when you when you emphasize intramuscular coordination and you work that hamstring, you know, with all the rest of those muscles, uh, which you do uh, in in uh, lunges and in step ups. You know, so that's the other fallacy that we have. Well, you know, and I I was part of a study. One of the original Gates studies done in 1981, and people can look it up. I can't remember the journal, but Roger Mann, Dr. Roger Mann, MD, and John Hagee, who was a, a biomedical engineer at Shriners Hospital for Crippled Children. And it was a, like a three-year study, and some of my athletes at Cal Berkeley, and I was one of the studies. And we did uh, force platform analysis and EMG. It was a landmark Gates study as to how the hamstring works. And it works to decelerate the lower leg and extend the hip. It works a little bit isometrically, then it shuts off, works again, and then there's an instantaneous isometric action just before contact. Well, immediately that changed, so that changed my thinking. Gosh, you know, I've got to do more stuff where I coordinate the hamstrings. I don't train, that was kind of the, the aha moment in me of training movements, not muscles. So that's a long-winded answer, but I hope it makes sense. And all I want is, look, I have no um, commercial interest in the Nord board or any of this stuff. I just want people to think about what they're doing and, and, and see the world with little kids' eyes. Go out on the field and watch what your player has to do and say, is this preparing them Sure, there's eccentric action, but it's not slow eccentric action like in the Nordic hamstring curl. It's, it's, I'm going to estimate close to, you know, 800 degrees per second or higher, you know, much higher probably. Yeah. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Vern. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we discussed the very much, very much discussed topic of speed, developing speed, developing agility in athletes from various different ages, various different competencies. So it's great to get into this topic with someone of Vern's experience. So it's a part two I'm sure you'll get tons and tons from. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Fusion Sport. So SmarterBase by Fusion Sport is the leading human performance solution for elite sport, military, government and workplace health. Smarterbase provides organizations with a central hub for the holistic human performance management of their teams. Highly configurable and integrating with other systems and wearables, Smarterbase enables organizations to capture, manage, analyze, report, and share data across the whole organization. When you adopt the Smarterbase human performance platform, you're choosing more than just a product, you're choosing a technology partner and a team of consultants who have worked with some of the world's best, most elite performance organizations. Smarterbase is trusted by the world's best in human performance, including the NBA, the LA Lakers, US Special Operations Command, the Australian Institute of Sport and US Soccer. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash smarterbase to learn more about how Smarterbase can help turn your data into a winning advantage. And this episode is also sponsored by Hytro. So as practitioners, we're always on the lookout for innovative ways to support athletic development and recovery. 
One brand that is making an impact in elite sport is Hytro, a wearable BFR training solution that unlocks the incredible benefits of BFR to deliver significant recovery and training advantages. The BFR straps are integrated in shorts and tees, delivering BFR to groups of athletes safely and more conveniently than ever before. Check them out at hytro.com to find out how Hytro BFR can give your athletes a competitive advantage. And this episode is also sponsored by Output Sports. Output Sports is a Swiss army knife for optimizing off-field performance. Output Sports have developed a one-stop portable tool for comprehensive, valid and reliable athlete assessment. For the first time ever, you can assess metrics such as jump height, barbell velocity, Nordics and speed and agility, all with a single wearable sensor. Output brings unparalleled efficiency to athlete testing to allow sports organisations, performance centres, teams and athletes to make data-driven decisions. The technology has originated from eight years of research and co-developed with over 40 sporting partners across the globe. You can learn more about Output on OutputSports.com or follow them on social media at OutputSports where you can schedule a demo. And now back to the episode with Vern. What I'd love to get your uh, thoughts on, Vern, is, and I've mentioned it a few times in the podcast, is this increased influence of track coaches on team sport, team sport coaches when it comes to developing speed. And again, I've said it a million times, but if you're a decent track coach and you are good at marketing, People should be absolutely, they should be absolutely killing it now because team sport coaches are absolutely lapping it up. Whether it be online certifications, whether it be in-person events, online events, like they're going mad for it. So I'd love to get your opinion on what team sport coaches should be taking away from track coaches when it when it comes to developing speed. We've had a couple of people on from the track side, but we've also had People on like a Robin Thorpe, for example, who was at Manchester United, who was basically saying it's the the sport, it's the it's the team sport coaches who are the best ones to be implementing this. Yes, take the basics from track, but don't get too in the weeds of what these guys are talking about because you're the expert, you're in the team sport setting. So I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. Oh boy. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm a. In, in, you know, I'm a track coach. I mean, my my specialty was uh, combined events, and which is everything, right? And I'm enamored with speed. Um, I've worked in, you name it, you know, professional baseball, professional soccer. And the, the thing that I learned right away, because I went from track and field to professional baseball, I tried to bring the track concepts, even some of the drills and that, and it fell flat on its face because the players right away, realize they were learning drills they weren't getting faster and then I then I immersed myself in the game I learned the game just like you know in that and what kind of speed do you need in that and uh you know it's a lot of these so the 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 answer is it's not new so this 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 started if you go back in English football in the even in the 80s 70s some of the some of the top track and field coaches at the time were brought in ad hoc by various clubs during preseason preseason was different than as you know and uh and then the, the italians were the first to really bring they brought Piet, uh, uh carlo vittori and i believe it was ac milan i may misspeak uh 
to to actually be their fitness coach. That was Pietro Menea's coach, who was the world record holder. But his, um, you know, I think he uh, he was a very bright guy. He uh, he he learned the game. He knew the game. So uh, I think he did a pretty effective job of helping because we had a player on the Tampa Bay Mutiny who had because in Europe they all, they call all the fitness guys prof and he goes prof he goes you sound a lot like prof professor Vittori and I go hey, really that's an honor you know and and he said yeah because we did a lot of this stuff so yeah I mean you know I, I see I see a lot of uh, like with the American World Cup team in uh, in uh, Latin, in um, Brazil, they're doing weighted sled pulls in the middle of the frickin' competition. I mean, think about that. Well, first of all, why are you doing weighted sled pulls with a soccer player anyway? Okay. Oh, we're working on acceleration. Well, you know what? There are simpler ways to work on acceleration. I've got a simple progression that we use with a football player that's three, literally three steps for three steps, and then you're to the ball or you're to the opponent, okay? And by the way, soccer is, and most sports are not just acceleration and deceleration. They're top-end speed. Now, you may, you, know, you may not be running 12.4 meters per second like Usain Bolt, but doggone it, you're a winger in soccer in the EPL on those beautiful pitches and if you're not hitting 9.8 meters per second for three or four steps, you're not going to be on the pitch, you know. So what are we doing to prepare them for that, okay? And so what we do is we take them away from the pitch, and we basically do track practice. Well, the, the, the thing about that is, is you have, to, you have to understand how to adapt your stride, okay? In, 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 in team sports, you don't accelerate to top speed. You accelerate to optimum speed. And you have less distance to accelerate. So you have to adapt the concepts and adapt the principles. And I agree with your person from Man U. I, I want somebody who knows the game to be, you know, to integrate speed as part of the whole development. So I'm not, I don't want, I hate to make a blanket statement because I know there are some good people I don't want to, you know, in, in England that have done a decent job, you know, but I, when I see these blanket things like if you need to get faster, find a track coach. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. What are you getting faster for? Now, if you want to improve your testing speed, okay, you know, like to get signed, well, maybe get a track coach, but that may not carry over to, to the game. Uh, Messi, Messi will test in the lower third of any population of soccer players that, that you do, but he doesn't lose very much when he gets on the field, and he understands the concept of game speed, how to read the game. And position himself, you know. So, uh, I, I, does that I, I, does that answer your question? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I've I've got a follow on from that, Vern. So, just you mentioned about adapting the principles. So, when that, what does that look like in practice? Well, Taking what a track coach would do versus what a team coach yeah, would do very, to improve speed. There's too many drills in track, too. By the way, that, and, and what I see, we we've gotten enamored with drills, and drills do not equal skills. So it's, it's, it's a few basic um, positions where you're working on the foot down from above. You're working on, 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 on posture, arm action, leg action. And you're working in, you know, in multiple directions. So you might, you might um, what, one of the things I like to do is just with a little bit of movement, and then I put a hoop down and say, 
you know, um, like five meters out and say, bingo, accelerate, hit that with your right foot, accelerate, hit that with your left foot, you know, and, and then, uh, and then we, then we will we'll add a ball to it right away where they're going to have to accelerate, hit the hoop with whatever foot, uh, receive a ball, turn and send the, you know, run and, 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 and go back so that you're always connecting the, the, the discrete speed action with some soccer action. You see what I'm saying? And so if you're playing small-sided games, which is also the, the, the downfall of a lot of rugby and soccer right now, the cause of a lot of injuries, you need to somehow figure out how to open open one game up where they have to sprint 30 meters or 20 meters. You know, where and, and you have to figure out, a colleague of mine, he was the only other fitness coach in the MLS when it started in 96, Jim Liston's now with the LA Galaxy. He was with Toronto and started with the Galaxy. Jim's a good dude and he's really smart. And I remember him and I having this conversation at the MLS. Uh, it was a training thing in '98, and and he he and I were the only guys that would have guys sprint all out. You know, you you pick the person. You know, so we we build them up to it, and you start out with left, right, left as fast as you can go. And then you go left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right, right, left, and until you're up to 20 or 30 meters. So you learn how to, and then you have to look over your shoulder, you know, because you're going to receive a ball, you know, and, and then you run curves, run curve sprints, run the center circle, you know, run half the center circle and then have to go down the midline, you know, things like that. That's what you do to get faster for soccer, and that's what you do to prevent hamstring injuries. I think, again, I always fall back on social media's impact on what people do and how that drives practice. And I think having the drills, and like you said, there's too many drills in track. I think there's definitely a shift towards drills looking perfect on camera to put on oh, Instagram, yeah. to put on Twitter, to make... Oh, yeah, you, oh. you don't see the rest, but you see the 15-second drill that looks absolutely perfect versus the chaos of what the actual the game actually is would you agree then that that's actually driving practice what's going oh, on with yeah, the athletes cool. i mean yeah. you know i watch the various soccer channels and and they always show uh what they do during the week and plus a lot of the stuff like look somebody said do you use ladders well we use ladders we probably overused ladders 20 years ago i still use a a ladder but i use a fine five rung ladder okay and i make you sprint for five, five or ten meters, and then you have to approach the ladder, so you have to you have to um, close your stride down, and then you have to reaccelerate. That's the game, not not a ladder. And you see you see these million dollar players jogging through this stuff, just going half ass. So what you know what good does that do? You're just you know the only the only person people who have made millions billions of dollars with just do it is Nike. I hate Nike. Don't just do it. Do it better and do it well if you want to get better, you know, and that's, yeah. But, yeah, it's social media is going to be our, it was our down, it might be the downfall of our country. Oh, we got an idiot elected president with it, and, uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, I don't know. <laughs> but it's great. I mean, I mean, I have gotten more good stuff off of Twitter because of who you follow, by the way. You know, I mean, believe me, ideas research studies, uh, contacts. Hey, I saw you doing this. You know, can I contact you? Why are you doing it? Where do you put it in practice? You know, like 
because there are, I don't want to disparage drills. The thing about drills is you have to know, I have a, you can see my library behind me. I have, I have, and that's only a small part of it. There's a closet back there with full of binders from 1962 on. And uh, it's finding the appropriate drill for the appropriate individual in the right situation. You know, and, and, and the, it's like a pretty girl. It's real easy to fall in love with the drill, you know, and then you get to know her and you go, oh, man, she can't, you know, she can't put a sentence together or something like that. You know, <laughs> and then you, you got to break up, you know, and so understand, understand the understand what the drills do. That's that's the thing. These a lot of track coaches come in and they baffle them with bullshit, you know, like this will do this. This will do this. Like with young soccer players, one of the biggest things that I've always done is um, towing. Teach them what running fast feels like because they don't know what, you know, I'm talking about 12, 13, 14 year old. I've actually done that with with veteran pro players that lost speed, you know, and built them up so they could feel that rhythm, that tempo again, you know, and it just it gave them that a confidence that they could, well, in one case, play a couple of more years, you know. And that so anyway just just going back to the social media stuff not with you know all seriousness how big of an issue is and it, it can be really positive based on the people you follow it's up to you whether it's a positive you or anyone whether it's a positive experience or a negative experience because of who you follow and who actually you interact with but there's a growing and there has been for a couple of years a growing area of social media that is driven by the gurus, driven by people who are talking about coaching that potentially don't do that much coaching. And they, they get a following. They That instantly, with younger coaches, potentially means respect. And the cycle continues. And this ego and this thing, this keyboard coach, actually moves into having some real influence on, on people, again, that have got that have got um, power over elite athletes and have been driven by this guy who's online, they don't know, um, who's yeah, feeding them information. Who's That's really a big not. problem, in my opinion. It's a huge problem. And, you know, um, I, I rented this. I, I haven't been coaching the last eight weeks because of COVID here, and it's, uh, it's kind of out of respect for me with the local swim team. I've worked a lot in swimming, dry land and swimming, hands-on, a lot in the last well, since really since 2002, but as well as other sports, but so our local swim team. And, um, uh, so I, I, I haven't seen it now. We had our, uh, our Emma Wyatt win the silver medal in the 400 IM. And I never once would put one of her workouts online. People would say, well, why? out of respect to Emma. And I've, I put a few pictures of our kids, uh, in morning sessions saying, you know, like, what's the rest of the world doing? You know, that's kids, kids today will get up at four, five thirty in the morning and do great work. And, you know, and, and that, but I also listening to the kids talk to them. I've gotten to know them really well. We've, we have a book club with them and that I lead and gotten to know, you know, it's, it's a really, I only work now with the senior group. So they're, we are net, we call our national team group. We've got three or four kids that are on the U S national team and that, and they're under 18 usually 14 to 18. And, and I listen to them talk when they come. I want them to come and I, you know, and, and they're, they're just so influenced by Instagram and what's put, did you see that 
say the some the sharks simpler work were the sharks. So the minnows someplace else. Do you see what they were doing? Yeah. Does that make you better? It makes you tired. You know, and they're they're influenced. And and the, you know who's really influenced by social media is the parents of that in that age group. You know, but but then you have the more mature athlete that's influenced, and you have young coaches that are influenced by these guys. You know, and um, there's they're out there. They're making you know, and and you know, I, I make a living. I make a li- my my living is made through coaching and through, but not online coaching. Uh, if I can't coach you in person, I, I I'm not doing it. You know, and uh, and I, I don't like to. Uh, I don't. We in in our in our network in our game network, we have access to an extensive video library of various, you know, and, and that. But that's it's it's a there's a specific context. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a huge problem. Just like it is in in the broader world, there's no way to vet this stuff, and they're self-proclaimed experts. You know, I mean, it, it, it just get a website. It used to be a website, but now get an Instagram account or a TikTok account. And, uh, you know, you put enough stuff on there and, and you it's it's number of likes. One guy was bragging about the number of likes. And the, I have I don't know how many contacts I have on Twitter. I don't give a damn. I, I, I got on it basically to help. Uh, to share ideas and to promote game, to be honest with you. But it's been more now to share ideas. I'm a shitty promoter of game. And uh, uh, somebody said, my daughter, who's into sports marketing, said, Dad, you've got a lot of followers. Okay, that's great, Peanut. But, you know, that's not the, that's not the goal. You know, it's it's to exchange ideas. So, yeah, it. I don't know what the solution is because we can't go back. We can't shut the – we can't. We can't shut this off. Look! Look what's happened. Look what's happening. What's come out in the last three weeks about Facebook? Last two weeks about Facebook. You know, I mean, and, and if government can't shut it off, how are we going to do it? We just have to, Rob. We just have to educate. We have to be willing to call people out. You know, and um, you know, how much are you charging for that? I mean, I, I've told people just call me. You know, I'll share stuff with you. I'm not going to. I won't give you. Uh, work sometimes I have. I won't give you workouts because those workouts are made were made up for the for that particular individual or that particular team or whatever. But I'll certainly give you examples or talk to you, you know, and share with you because the, our goal should be to make to to professionalize what we do. You you you. I've heard you before use the word industry. I abhor the word industry. You know, if I wanted to be in an industry, I would have gotten a hard hat and joined a union and worked <laughs> like that. But we need to be professionals. Teachers are professionals. Coaches should be professionals, you know, you know, like that. And, and but we're not elevating ourselves to a profession. The more we the more we lower ourselves to some of this stupid stuff that's that's really just nonsense. You know, and, and um, I, you know, I'm not going to mention any names, but, you know, these more power to you make money. But but, you know, think about the effect that you're having. I think that's really important. Really important. Yeah. So for the last few minutes, let's fl- let's flip this this um, this conversation to into the positives of our industry and what potential potential like opportunities for those younger coaches in our industry that you see in the next five to ten years. Just tremendous opportunities for people out there for young coaches to if, you know to 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 take. Take a step back. Don't be in a hurry. Don't do more. Don't do more free 
unpaid internships, but find a situation where you can coach. There's only in the EPL, there's what, 26, there's, there's only X number of jobs at the highest level, but you can have such a great impact at the, at the youth and the high school level. And you can make a really good living. You can make a really good living and you're not going to be fired when the manager's fired, you know? <laughs> and so there's tremendous opportunities out there to create your own situation within. And I, in my crystal ball, um, we have seen part of the problem that we have in, at the higher levels is we, we don't have the uh, movement skills that are developed in physical education that physical education is going to come back in some way, shape, or form. And I think that's going to represent opportunities. It's going to be more linked to sport than maybe it was into the school. So broaden your, broaden your um, base of knowledge. Certainly get out and have as many experiences as you can. Go observe really good coaches coach, not just S&C or athletic development coaches. But go watch a, a great netball coach. You have really some good field hockey coaches in England and or here. Go watch, you know. And uh, I mean that. And then you say, well, what can I take away from that? You know, that's going to help me make me um, better in the weight room, better out on the field, and 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 broaden your skills. Broaden your skills so you're more marketable. You know, if if you're if you're highly specialized. You know, I, I don't think you're going to be as marketable, you know, and, and think of that team model that you said. I like that. I'm going to, Rob, I'll give you full credit. I'm going to use that. <laughs> you know, or you have an area where you're, you know, really proficient. I know when I hired, hired people, I my biggest weakness I always felt was nutrition. So I always wanted to find an assistant who was more proficient in that area, you know, or, you know, maybe now it would be if I were hiring staff. I would try to fire it, find somebody who was a little more proficient in in analytics and GPS and some of that kind of stuff. It's just hard for an old guy to 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 learn a whole new skill set. I mean, I I know what questions to ask, but I want somebody who's really been trained in that too. You know, so I have a colleague, Greg Gatz, who's the head Olympic sport strength and conditioning coach or athletic development coach at University of North Carolina, and he has four assistants, and they bring in two or three interns. Um, each year, and they do a wonderful job of with those interns. There was actually last, well, I get online with them. We had a couple of guys from England, and and of you know really broadening their skills. So you know this week you're going to hone in on the speed element. Next week you're going to hone in on the strength element. Next week you're going to hone in on the recovery element, and then and then we'll put it all together because you're there for a semester or something like that. So no, I, I I'm uh, I, I I'm optimistic. And uh, uh, for for all of you, all of the younger people in the field, uh, if if you can just um, you know, we, we pointed out the negatives and just be aware of that. And uh, and I'm I, I, and and my advice too is read. I'm a voracious reader. Uh, you know, read. Get outside your own sports specialty. You know, uh, I mean, I've, I've you know, I just ordered a book on. Uh, uh, not a technical book on cricket, but I've, I've been gotten enamored with cricket working with the Trinidad Tobago cricket board a few years ago. And now we, we, uh, Dean Benton really did a great job with, um, help me, Elise Perry, who was the female cricketer of the last decade, bringing her back 
from a hamstring injury that was a traumatic. If you if you saw the movie the te- the, the the wrecker, I mean it was it was not preventable. But then they try to rehab her on a damn uh, Nord board, and she kept not getting better until she went to Dean and and really learned how to sprint. You know too. So anyway, but no, there's great opportunities, and but be ready to take advantage of them. You know, Absolutely, completely agree. I think it's it's a positive time to be in this industry when opportunities, although the competition is high, there's never been as many opportunities, especially as strength and conditioning becomes, this is on that just in the strength and conditioning track, becomes more of a, a, a buzzword that is in every household because people are reading it in papers and wondering what it is. And, you know, I think it's a good time to be around, but you don't find many Americans into cricket then uh no it's, it's really kind of interesting because we've got a lot of expats here right whether oh, i mean you think of all the british commonwealth countries and um i mean when i was a little kid in santa barbara there was a hope ranch is where the rich people lived and i didn't know what it was we'd go for a ride out there on sundays and there's all these guys out there with white dressed in white long pants and, and they were playing cricket and and it was and then I you, I got a little older and I looked and it was a pretty interesting mix you could see there was some Indians and you know and and that it's it's a really particularly now the uh, the T20 and and that it's yeah. a really interesting game I'm surprised it will it will take it will come here just like rugby sevens are really becoming popular here you know and uh it's it I mean T20 is much more fun game or big bash cricket than watching American games. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's yeah. tremendous. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, it's, there's a lot, you know, that that's the thing. And, and that's the thing. The other thing to think about for the young coaches today, you know, look beyond the high in quote, high profile sports. I mean, you know, the, the high, I don't know. That's not the right word. Cause cricket, I just said this to somebody the other day, cricket's bigger worldwide than baseball is. You think of, I mean, you know, I mean, you go anywhere. I was in Cairo and, and, uh, you know, and, and it was a really slum area and these kids are playing cricket, you mm-hmm. know, and, and, uh, you know, so, or soccer, football, you know, so, uh, but, but look beyond some of the traditional sports for opportunity, you know, uh, I mean, right now we're, we, with game swimming, we had 20% of the men's and women, men and women on the American swim team, you either in their development stage or presently use the gain system. And people don't look at swimming. I, I can't. There's college strength and conditioning because they don't want to work with swimming. They're, you know, they don't want to lift heavy. Well, they don't have to lift heavy, but they have to, they have to get stronger, you know. So endeavor to understand the sport because there's a lot of swim swimmers out there, you know, if you're thinking business, you know, so uh, anyway. I could go on forever. <laughs> no, no, that's great, Vern. Thank you very much. Now, I'll just a little, little wrap up. Thank you very much for your uh, for your time this morning to have a little chat. But where, just more importantly, where can people get to know more about the Game Network, more about you, your travels, your writing, wherever? Yeah, what's the best place? Well, the, the Game Network, the the website is www dot um the Game Network uh and uh dot com and there's pretty in-depth information there about when we were hoping to do in-person uh uh gain we do a gain cast every two weeks um uh, there's links online to that 
And right now, because of COVID, we do a game masterclass where you can find that on the game network. Um, I'm fairly active on Twitter. It's at Coach Gambetta. And you can search for my name on Facebook. I post the same thing and on LinkedIn. And um, my email is, uh, I'm not afraid to give it out. I've probably been uh, getting enough hate mail and good mail and that. Uh, <laughs> is uh, gstscoach at gmail.com. Yeah. And uh, I'm not a very good email um, responder. In fact, I'm reading a really good book right now about by Cal Newport about email and how to, and I've, I've really, I, I check it only twice a day now, but a lot of what's, times. What's the book called then? Uh, I can't remember the title of it. It's Cal it's, Newport, is it? Cal Newport. Yeah. He's, his best book is deep work, but this is, yes, it might be, it might be something like the end of email or something like that. And he really, uh, he's a professor at George Washington university, but um, no. And, and I what so contact me and I might just say, well, if you're for, you know, WhatsApp or something like that, and we'll just talk, you know, as, uh, just, uh, we just try to respect each other's time. So uh, I'm interested in, I'm interested in seeing people get better and athletes get better and, uh, you know, and, and giving back. I, I've, I have been an incredibly fortunate person throughout my career to have great mentors, great coaches myself, and to work with just some absolute the best athletes of, you know, two and some people you've never heard of that were, you know, just, just really, um, or just tremendous people. So uh, that's, that's the joy of what we do. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Vern. I'll let you go. Crack on with your day, but really appreciate your time and uh, it's a pleasure to speak to you. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks, mate. Speak soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 372 of the Pace Performance Podcast. I can't believe it took 331 episodes before I got Vern on for a chat. So it was an absolute honour to speak to him and uh, an hour very well spent. So big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Fusion Sport, Hytro, and Output Sports for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run in its current form without these guys, so I really, really do appreciate all their support. Got some really cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks from with representatives from Canada, from the US, and from Wales, actually. So um, some really cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. 